welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and if you're listening to this podcast, you may like to know that there's a video version available on perfectnightin.tv. Today's special guest is film writer and lecturer Ellen Cheshire. Ellen has written books on Audrey Hepburn, Jane Campion and the Coen Brothers, and she's also written extensively about war movies, Charlie Chaplin and James Bond. She's currently writing a book on Ang Lee, and she loves TV as well as film, which is why she's agreed to share her perfect night in with us. So let's go and meet her. Hello, Ellen. Hello, Neil. Welcome to Perfect Night In. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to a perfect night in. Can you describe your environment where this perfect night in is taking place? Well, my television is actually in my office because I can include you know, watching television as being part of my work, which obviously is really cool. So I have a nice little stressless recliner. So I'll probably curl up on that for my perfect night in. OK, Ellen, so without any further ado, it's 6pm. Let's get your perfect night in started. Make way for Herald Lloyd. Herald Lloyd. Lack of wild. The bad style. A pair of glasses and a smile. Hooray for Harold Lloyd. Um, well, that's lovely to hear that music again. It's amazing how that kind of phrase, hooray for Harold Lloyd, you know, a pair of glasses and a smile has become... So synonymous for people of my age and like many of your other previous guests, I am of a certain age. (laughs) We've really branched out um, into sort of middle aged women now who have the same nostalgic pattern of growing up in the 70s in Britain when there were only three channels. And then suddenly at a very pivotal age when you know, we're just about to turn into a teenager, you have this radical new fourth channel. So I'm afraid that pattern is going to continue here today. This is very kind of deep programme we are asked to do this perfect night in. Um, it's not at all fun once you start doing it. I'd say six of the eight are kind of like the making of Ellen programmes. Uh, so these are programmes I've watched probably from the age of seven to 18, and which kind of really established who I am as a person now. So thank you for that, Uh, that I have basically not changed since I was a teenager. You know, I'm very much into silent film. And so kind of watching this kind of chopped up Harold Lloyd with weird narration is probably not how I would choose to watch Harold Lloyd now. But what was so fabulous about this programme and just other silent films that were on, like Laurel and Hardy, they would just kind of be on television, is it was something you weren't afraid of. You just watch silent films as you watch cartoons and finger bobs. You know, they were just on. And so I kind of found silent films that way. I picked the one uh, just to watch again that had the famous clock dangling scene from Safety Last. But when you listen to the narration again, it's really very um, meta. It has... um, Henry Corden does the narration, who was the voice of Fred Flintstone for many years. Harold brags to Clancy that he's got a lot of clout with the cops. What's more, he's going to prove it. I've read the script and (laughs) does he have a surprise coming? It's really quite sort of meta. It has things like, hey, this is developing into a serious social drama. It is most odd. So the kind of format of the programme was just kind of chopped up extracts from various Harold Lloyd films, sort of left with a cliffhanger, or in the episode I watched, The Clock Hanger, where it goes into, you know, Hickory Dickory Dock, hanging off the clock. Poor Harold's on the clock, 
we'll leave him there, dot, dot, dot. And then they go into another few clips from somewhere else. So, yeah, really odd. Only 20 minutes. Good start to the evening. Nostalgic. And as with most of these things, you'll notice there's a theme developing over the uh, evening, is they all are basically a gateway to film. So I you know, love television, watching television, but kind of where I really sort of write about and research and watch a lot of is films. And so most of these things that I'm going to be talking about opens into a film world. And that's kind of how I found film was through television, because again, in the 70s and 80s, there were lots of films on television. And on Nobi have endless access to films now. You know, you couldn't get more access to films. You don't really stumble across them in the same way. You have to kind of go looking for things now. And I think that's very different where, rather than just going, oh, it's a bit of Laurel and Hardy now. <laughs> so that's why Harold Lloyd is in there as a sort of, you know, this was a something I remember as a child and just kind of made me know that silent film was absolutely fine. <laughs> in Hollywood, the only place where stars come out in the daytime. This is Lulu French, a siren of the silver screen. He'll follow her to the end of the world. Or at least to the studio a few blocks away. And your next choice at 6.30 leads very nicely into what you're just saying. Yeah, so my next choice is Paddington Goes to the Movies. I mean, who doesn't love Paddington? And I'm talking about the Paddington of the uh, 70s and 80s with Michael Horden doing the voiceover narration and the kind of wonderful blend of 2D and 3D with uh, black and white sets. And then sort of, uh, it's quite, really quite odd when you actually think about um, how it's set up. And this was a kind of a, a again, another 20 minute. Uh, not that I have a short attention span or anything. I can watch whole long movies, you know, with subtitles and everything. But yeah, so this is another 20 minutes. And again, I get kind of three stories in here. So just like, you know, I had three different Harold Lloyds earlier. I have now three sort of different setups of um, Paddington here. And he goes to the movies. So he starts off shopping and he sees this beautiful Art Deco cinema. And again, this sort of splashes of colour with the beautiful stained glass windows of the cinema. And a commissionaire, I mean, that's my kind of cinema that has a commissionaire and a uniform and beautiful Art Deco windows. He says Paddington can't come in because it's an A certificate film. And so Paddington sneaks around the side and looks through the exit he has a former general manager of a cinema. I don't approve of that at all. But, you know, it was Paddington's uh, first experience of cinema. And what better way than to sneak through and see they actually have playing a scene from Singing in the Rain. Imagine that being your first cinema experience to see Singing in the Rain, which is obviously is a lovely film about Hollywood and about the transition from silent film to sound Weirdly, though, what he's seeing is black and white and singing in the rain is in colour. But well, I, I can go with that, don't worry. It's my gateway to, in my imagination, singing in the rain. He'd never been to the cinema before, and in view of the weather, singing in the rain sounded an ideal way of keeping dry. Not that he felt much like singing himself. It was as he drew near to a door-marked exit that he heard the sound of music. Shining all over the 
Paddington decided to investigate the matter, and in doing so, he suddenly discovered a whole new way of life. When I was about 13, I broke my leg from my ankle to my thigh, so it's quite dramatic. How did you do that? Running down the road after a school PE teacher made me play netball. Yeah, but look they broke the knee. And um, we'd had a video for a couple of years as a, a family. Um, and so I had like six weeks at home, so I thought I'd catalogue my uh, video collection. You know, I had six videos. You've got to remember, this is the time when a blank videotape cost about £10. <laughs> so like 30 quid now. So I had six videos of my own. You know, my parents had a few others as well. And this is stuff you take off, off the, the TV? Tele- take off the television. One of them was singing in the rain. So I kind of watched that. And when it got to the end of the tape, the video would automatically rewind and start playing again. So I didn't even have to get up because, again, this is the day before a remote control. <laughs> uh, so probably I watched, I don't know, that film about 20 or 30 times in that six weeks so so again so I haven't programmed the whole singing in the rain in my evening obviously which would be part of a longer perfect night in but I get to see Paddington watching singing in the rain for the first time and then he reenacts Gene Kelly singing in the rain uh, so to me it's like a you know, kind of perfect night in by going to a lovely art deco cinema with Paddington Singing in the rain Dancing in the rain I'm happy again We've got ten minutes to kill before your next choice at seven o'clock, so I think we'll go out and get some snacks. What can I get you to eat? Well, I mean, after Paddington, I, you know, I'm feeling a bit marmalade but I don't know whether I want a marmalade sandwich, so I think I might have to have some Jaffa Cakes. Jaffa Cakes? Jaffa Cakes. And, yeah, I, you know, as is the power of advertising, in my head, as I eat Jaffa Cakes, I do the full moon, half a moon, total eclipse from the wonderful adverts. So, um, yeah, so that's how I eat Jaffa Cakes. <laughs> Good morning, children. Good morning, Miss. Full moon. Full moon. Half moon. Half moon. Mm. Total eclipse. Total eclipse. Good. Now, let's do it one more time. Full moon. Full moon. McVitie's Jaffa Cakes. Deliciously self-centred. And while we're on the subject of snacks, have you got any strong opinions on Monster Munch? Well, until I heard this podcast, I didn't actually know there was more than one flavour of Monster Munch. Um, <laughs> not, not an aisle I go down frequently. Uh, so it would have to be the yellow bags, which I, I'm thinking were beef. That's roast beef, yeah. If you're pushing me towards the Monster Munch, I'll go kind of uh, original, vintage, retro uh, beef flavoured then. Now, your next choice is at uh, seven o'clock, and it's an old favourite of mine too. Oh. It's time to play the music. It's time to light the light. It's time to meet the Muppets on the Muppet Show tonight. It's time to put on makeup. It's time to dress up right. It's time to get things started. Why don't you get things started? So you gotta admit, the opening is catchy. So smallpox. It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, motivational. I've moved 
moved out of cinemas and into old theatres now. Um, alongside writing books, I do work in an old theatre, um, doing fundraising to, um, to make sure it, it doesn't kind of fall apart and that we have uh, beautiful stained glass and, and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, so The Muppet Show, again, you know, this was kind of a huge part of my um, childhood growing up. You know, I had the Muppet Show albums... The annuals. I've got, you know, I've got a Kermit and a Fozzie Bear. I did a really good um, Miss Piggy impression, clicking my hair over my shoulders and going, Hiya! Hiya! No! Kermit never told me about this part. Put this! Hiya! The one I've chosen is the one with Alice Cooper uh, from the third series. Hey there, and welcome again to the Muppet Show. Hey, tonight our special guest star is one of the world's most talented but frightening performers, Alice Cooper. So, beware of ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. It has Alice Cooper in a kid's family show. You had Alice Cooper who, in 1978, you know, his songs just been banned in america and you know he's he's working for the devil he's the kind of long-running gag in the show he's working the devil he's trying to get the muppets to sell their soul in return for fame and fortune uh, you know the, the faustian pacts you know? <laughs> mr cooper yes I, <laughs> let me come right to the point you sir are a demented sick degenerate barbaric Naughty Freakle Why thank you So you've got the sort of Alice Cooper gag going through Which is fabulous And as Kermit says it is a weird weird show um, With ghosts And ghouls and, And then suddenly you have Robin singing somewhere over the rainbow. You know, obviously Fozzie <laughs> did want um, you know something. Couldn't something nice happen? And then you get his wish comes true. All my, you know, you know, lots of the sort of favourite um, sketch shows within that. You know, um, Pigs in Space and the Muppets Lab in there as well. So you know, you get a whole range of the kind of the best bits of it. Now, Pigs in Space. We last saw the spaceship Swine Trek. Captain Link Hogthrob was suffering from a mysterious space disease. First mate Piggy, help me move Link back to the Electrocosmotron. Yes, yes. Looks <laughs> <laughs> like King Kong. <laughs> Easy, yeah. Oh, good, good. <sighs> oh, oh, doctor. Does he stand a chance? Well, I hesitate to try this shock treatment. It's very dangerous and it could kill him. Oh, is there no alternative? Well, you could give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. You connect the wires, I'll throw a switch. You know, it ends with the uh, ongoing joke about the Faustian pact. And the, earlier on, you know, Gonzo had been really tempted uh, by this and was going, I need a pen, I need a pen, I'll sell my soul for a pen. Or no, I have um, other uh, other uses for that. And then uh, it comes on right at the very end, you know, after the school's outnumber and he's got this big scroll and Kermit, you know, we all fear the worst that he's sold his soul. And as he unfurls, it's something even more horrendous. It's the bill for the special effects for the night. And then, of course, we end with a very literary uh, reference, which would have gone way over my head there when Waldorf and Sattler end the show, say... So that was Alice Cooper. You should see his sister, James Fenimore. (laughs) Brilliant. 
what can I say? It's the Muppets. <laughs> and your next choice at 7.30, I have got to say, has changed my life. You did say before there was one thing that is now your best thing ever or on the list of and one thing you didn't get on with at all. Which one's this? This is the one I love. This is Here's Lucy. Oh, my goodness. I thought this was incredible. So you'd never seen this episode before? You, or you must have seen Love Lucy. I no, love Lucy. I mean, I'm, no? I'm aware no. of her. I know that she was partially responsible for Star Trek. And Mission Impossible. <laughs> I've never, ever sat through a programme. And when I saw this was on the list, I was thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be a bit of a chore, this. And it is just fantastic. I can't praise it highly enough. You tell us why it's so great. So... Here's Lucy, starring Lucille Ball. So those kind of first three were probably all on kind of the, the BBC channels or something like that. Um, and then when Channel 4 comes, you suddenly have this whole amazing world of new things. Um, and one of the things they kind of brought in were just these masses and masses of 50s and 60s TV shows. So I could have been choosing anything from like The Monsters, The Addams Family, Car 54, Where Are You?, yeah, all of those things were kind of like just like every day on Channel 4. And one of them was I Love Lucy, which was her first series that she uh, did with her husband, Desi Arnaz, in the um, 50s. But by the time this series comes, here's Lucy, um, in the late 60s, they, they divorced. Uh, so this is kind of her on her own. But I did absolutely love I Love Lucy. Um, so Lucy Ball... An amazing woman. Uh, she had been a um, contract player for RKO Studios in the kind of 30s and 40s. Um, and she'd met sort of this uh, band leader called Desi Arnaz and had children. And they had this television show called I Love Lucy in the 50s, um, which they made themselves through a company called Desilu. And after they divorced in 1960, um, she became the sole owner of, of Desilu. And they had, in the meantime bought RKO Studios. I think that's fantastic. She was running Desilu Productions from the former RKO Studios where she had been a contract player. And she was like the first woman to run a major television studio from 1962 when she was doing it on her own. And you mentioned Star Trek, that was one of theirs, Mission Impossible, The Untouchables, and then her own stuff. So she's like a really amazing woman and I think she should be praised more. So here's Lucy. So I can I could have picked any number of episodes, but I picked this one um, because it's the one where she meets the Burtons, um, and this is Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor rocking up to do this episode, and they have just uh, as a couple, um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, um, had recently bought uh, this famous diamond. The kind of setup is uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor in town staying at this hotel and uh, Lucille Ball is um, in the foyer of the hotel trying to sort of spot Richard Burton. Fails, but he's a plumber. Meanwhile, uh, Richard Burton wants to go out and escape the hotel to get the ring resized. So he dresses up as the hotel's plumber and goes down through the foyer uh, and Lucy Ball kind of takes him, as you would with a hotel 
plumber back to her office to get her to fix her leaky pipes. Uh, so there's quite a few gags about leaky pipes. <laughs> so yeah, so she's got Richard Burton, who she doesn't recognise <laughs> because he's wearing a plumber's uniform, fixing her pipes. It's a stubborn little beast, isn't it? <laughs> You're English, aren't you? Certainly not. I'm a Welshman. Oh, is there a difference? Irene Bethel, he'd funny and you can yell him, Herman Wallis. What does that mean? It means bite your tongue in Welsh. <laughs> it loses a little in translation. He does actually manage to fix her leaky pipes. <laughs> This is only the first half. We, we haven't even got to the Elizabeth Taylor bit. So Richard Burton leaves, but he's got out of his plumber uniform by now and he's left those behind. Lucille Ball discovers that he's left the ring box, the ring in his uh, uniform. So inevitably, I mean, you're going to, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> the ring's right there. I would. So she tries on the ring and guess what? She can't get it off again. So we obviously had the uh, the fabulous guy. We're going to have to cut it off. What, this precious ring? Oh, no, no, your, your, your finger. <laughs> Richard Buckhammer's back goes, can't believe that it's not coming off. And then cuts to, I've got an idea. And so uh, she then goes back and meets Elizabeth Taylor, who looks, one, you know, just wonderful. I mean, her first line is just... The way she delivers it is, I mean, a lot of Richard Burton is kind of through these amazing kind of like eye-rolling uh, looks, which don't translate well to um, podcasts. But Elizabeth Taylor is kind of screeching when she finds out that <laughs> she's wearing the ring. Well, what would you think if I told you I'd turned plumber, mended her leaky pipes, <laughs> met a man who was Cleopatra, and she's got your ring on her finger and she can't get it off? <laughs> I'd say your cocktail hour had started a little early today. <laughs> but really, he's telling the truth. And incidentally, he's a wonderful plumber. Uh, well, that's good to know if my pipes ever get leaky. <laughs> but really, he is telling the truth. You're not kidding. She does have it on. Yeah, and I can't get it off. So we cut to the third and final scene um, where uh, they are, you know, greeting the press who are wanting to see the ring. They're standing in front of a curtain and you have Elizabeth Taylor's very beautiful, small, tanned hand <laughs> and then Lucille Ball's um, very pale hand as the other hand. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor can barely keep a straight face in that scene. Richard Burton obviously shows some supreme acting skills that he can. <laughs> but Elizabeth Taylor, I mean... Again, it's just such a wonderful moment of visual comedy as the kind of two hands, kind of as the hand possessed, um, is, you know, does actually end up sort of taking over. It's genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> now it's my mission um, in life to make everybody watch it. Starting here now, it is available on uh, certain streaming platforms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's wonderful. This, I mean, so you've got the kind of contemporary stuff about the ring, obviously, which was very much in the news. Uh, but there's a kind of real throwaway line about him not winning the Oscar. I'm profoundly moved. <laughs> that almost makes up for not winning the Oscar. <laughs> 
which by that point he'd not won six Oscars. He had been nominated six times and not won. And then by the end of his career, he'd done that seventh time, so which is kind of, a, um, you know, he should have got an Oscar just for this, this scene. Was there like famous people in every episode or was this a, a one-off? It wasn't in every episode, um, but yes, yeah, certainly there's, a, again, some fantastic ones with the Marx Brothers. I seem to remember where she's, or at least one of the Marx Brothers, that she dresses up and they do a kind of the famous mirror routine with each other. Uh, but yeah, no, certainly there were some special guest stars throughout. And what else was interesting was this was filmed in front of a live audience. So that's not canned laughter. They're, they're kind of watching it being filmed live. Not only you can tell the audience are really enjoying it, but I think the actors are really kind of playing off that as well. It is fabulous. I'm so pleased you chose it, Ellen. It's, it, it is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and that takes us up to the end of the first part of Your Perfect Night In. And this is the part of the show where I usually ask my guests to nominate an advert, but I'm going to change the format slightly. Oh, no. And I'm going to nominate an advert, and I'm going to play this oh. one now. Oh, no. Your first lesson is how to spot a real bird's eye fish finger. Fingers, ahoy! Now, Chief. Chef. What's this? How? Oh, crumb. Bird's eye codfish fingers all have new coats, crisper, goldener, and better fitting. And now for the inside story. Let's have a look, Cook. Chef. So do you want to explain why I may have chosen that advert, Ellen? Um, Well, you might have chosen that particular advert because I'm in it. Which part do you play, Ellen? Well, in the first half of the adverts, I play a fish finger. It was a taxing role. Okay. I've never quite understood why. My my fish finger has lumps all over it. It has bumps. And I, I, I don't know why. It's not as I'm a defective one and get thrown off the ship. I have more questions like, how did you end up playing a fish finger? So I had probably from about the age of... Um, Six or seven started going to some Saturday classes, the doing sort of singing, uh, dancing, and acting. And um, the name is very familiar now, but it was uh, it's the Sylvia Young Theatre School. But this is but this is before it was like the Sylvia Young Theatre School. This is just kind of when it was Sylvia Young, just doing kind of Saturday classes um, from an old boxing uh, gym in Covent Garden. <laughs> Uh, she, she started an agency um, for, you know, at the same time called Young'uns. Uh, so anyone that was kind of any good or looked like, in my case, the kind of perfect... Fish finger. <laughs> fish finger. Uh, was signed up um, and uh, put into the book. So from about seven to nine, I probably did about mm, eight adverts. What are the grey bits for? To fill it out. Bird's eye codfish fingers are whole chunks of finest cod fillet. I've done wire work. Uh, so we're all on wires which are being controlled by like these like marionettes by these kind of men above that were bouncing us around the ship. I'd already had the trauma of seeing Captain Bird's eye's beard wasn't real uh, because I'd seen that like him being having his beard being put on. Oh no. Um, so it was already like, oh no. That's traumatising. And then... What was even worse was, I'm really sorry, bird's eye. We weren't actually eating bird's eye fish fingers. They created these from fresh fish in the same studio that we were filming in. Uh, so they're just the smell of fish has me running past fishmongers to this day. So you did suffer for your art. I suffered for my art. And the last lesson is the taste. We'll consult the experts. They taste great. 
Mate. Uh -uh. Bird's eye codfish fingers. Now better than ever. You're in the Simon advert, is that right? Yeah, so this is the one I would love to see again. Um, so any of your listeners that have, like, videotapes from 1978, can you just go through them all and look for the launch advert for Simon, which was, like, a really big deal when it came out, MB Games, Simon Game. I don't think I've ever actually seen the um, advert because <laughs> we didn't have a video recorder then and if it wasn't on, you didn't see it. But I actually remember having a line in that one. So I think that was the only advert where I actually spoke... I certainly remember saying, oh, daddy, you got it wrong again, as my famous line. So for years, I've been telling this story and people go, yeah, I, I seem to remember that, Ellen. Like, backing away, you know, you know <laughs> delusions of grandeur. Um, but obviously, I've never actually seen this advert to see whether that is the line I had or whether it was cut. So, yeah, so if any of your TV archivist friends mm -hmm. can find that, they can just load that up too. Uh, YouTube. That would be very nice. Okay, while the search for your missing advert gets underway, let's begin the second half of your perfect night in. It's eight o'clock. one you didn't like no 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 <laughs> no, no this is all right okay okay so an audience with victoria wood so this is probably my most television of um my choices tonight but victoria wood like uh, lucy balls i've just had an amazing you know funny woman working from the kind of 30s to the 70s uh, so now i have an amazing funny woman who works from the 70s through to just a few years ago when she sadly uh died yeah she did it all she's sort of you know, wrote, um, produced, uh, sing, and was funny. She was just a funny woman. So I picked this audience with Victoria Wood as kind of, again, emblematic of her, you know, 40-odd year uh, career. And as I said, it is the most television. So I think it's probably the one that's kind of um, aged least well. <laughs> Still absolutely fantastic. Um, but it was the one that did have me reaching for my, like, uh, my iPad, going, oh, what's happened to Wincy Willis now? <laughs> then what is that Muesli advert that Lenny Henry was in? Oh, OK. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it was the one that had me most most looking that up um, as it's a kind of format of a show where you're performing towards a celebrity audience. I mean, she makes a joke about, you know, kind of where are the celebrities. We've not done bad here tonight. Who have we got? Some friends of Wincy Willis and some people from Guildford. Well, that's... <laughs> in the balcony the people from Guildford we don't show them because they're not famous <laughs> you haven't even had a cup of tea have you no whereas the celebrities what have they had some old volivons left over from Charles play people in the audience are kind of set up Joan Bakewell she's going to raise the tone you know there's a whole kind of you know, shtick building up to that and then what is her question do you think large bosoms are a handicap okay <laughs> don't think we'd have that kind of question now <laughs> So it's really quite funny kind of looking back on these. There's quite a lot of um, jokes in there about, um, you know, stalking and flashers, um, which yeah, I don't think they'd have that now. But, I mean, in terms of her set pieces, they were all kind of amazing. I, you know, I love the market researcher one. I'm not selling mayonnaise or anything. 
Oh, it's just a little survey. No, we're not selling anything. No, it's totally bona fide. <laughs> <laughs> just a few questions. I hope you don't mind. I know I would. <laughs> no, it's just a little survey. No, we're not selling anything. No, here's my ID. Oh, no, that's my breakfast. <laughs> here's my ID. Yes, I do look rather startled, don't I? I was taken in a photo booth and somebody had just poked an eclair through the curtains. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'd known about Victoria Wood for some time because my parents talked about going to see her in, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, so she'd always been part of their life. So therefore, when she became more famous and started being on television, they started watching Victoria Wood, so I kind of grew up as she got more famous. Um, and this is obviously like a pinnacle of the career at this point to be in, in an audience with. So, um, yeah, so I'd sort of known of her and she was a very funny woman. And then the ballad of Barry and Frida, which closes the show... It's a classic. Let's do it. Let's do it. Who really wants to rant and rave? Let's go. Cause I know just how I want you to behave. Not bleakly, not meekly. Beat me on the bottom with a woman's weekly. Sales of Women's Weekly. Does that go up or down every time <laughs> it's on? Um, and then the, um, the. I'm looking for my friend Kimberly. I thought I wouldn't have film in this one, but in the, in the I'm looking for my friend Kimberly um, sketch, they do go to the cinema and they're going to see, weirdly, uh, Mary Poppins 2, The Revenge. <laughs> so we'd have to wait another 30 years to actually see Mary Poppins 2. Then we went to this really sophisticated French restaurant. There was a man playing the piano, just like Richard Clayderman, only quicker. <laughs> And the waiter was gorgeous. He said to Kimberly, ooh, you've got lovely dimples in your cheeks. Well, they're not dimples. The holes where she had to kebab sideways. <laughs> the other one, really funny thing was, like, oh, it's television's going up market. There's going to be no more um, boxing or rugby on the television. It's going to be needlework and dressmaking. And little did she know <laughs> that we really would see, uh, you know, hairy men bending over doing dressmaking. <laughs> In the future of television, she was very prescient there. But yes, it was a, it was lovely to revisit it and, and um, be reminded of, of all the wonderful things she's done over the years. An audience with Victoria Wood takes up to nine o'clock. So what have you got for us next, Ellen? So this is the Avengers episode, look, stop me if you've heard this one, and I've got to say, this is the one I struggled with, Alan. You had problems with the Avengers? Okay, explain yourself, boy. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm scared of clowns too yeah, much. I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you are, yeah, have any kind of phobia of clowns, this is not the episode for you. I'm not going to say it's my favourite episode. So, first of all, I'm in the Linda Thorson era which I know for many people is like, why are you starting there? So again, this goes back to good old Channel 4. They started showing the Avengers. Uh, so this is probably when I'm about 13 or 14. And I see Linda Thorson, who's only six years older than me. And this is someone I can relate to. Diana Rigg, that was not anything that was in my wheelhouse of interest. You know, she was, you know, she just wasn't something that I... Yeah, so I think just coming from it from my perspective, this was a young woman who was having these amazing clothes, young, holding her own. She does get knocked out quite a lot, but then so did the others. 
Um, but there was no flirtatiousness. There was no romance with Steed. There wasn't any of that nonsense. Uh, and they were also really quite weird. And I loved Mother. And I know Mother's not in this episode, but I loved the character of Mother. So when I went back and watched the earlier ones, it's like, where's Mother? So I couldn't find an episode that brought together everything that I liked about the Thorson Steed Avengers. But this one does get some great clothes. <laughs> that blue coat. <laughs> um, she also has lots of different wigs, which I thought was, again, was fantastic. She has three different hairstyles in this episode. I think it changes during a scene in one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is um, a, obviously a, a kind of sad backstory to that in as much as the first hair dye they used on her like made her hair fall out or something. So that's why she had to wear all these wigs. Um, you have these great character actors. I mean, so I, one of the things I loved about the Avengers is either, you know, watching them afterwards, either spotting great actors from the past doing some shtick or spotting kind of actors from the future that kind of had their first, uh, you know, breakthrough in the Avengers. Uh, so you get both of that here. I mean... We've got John Cleese as the Eggman. You must be very, very careful. Eggs break, you know. So I believe. You see before you, 22 years of patient brushwork. Every clown's face in Britain registered and copyrighted by being painted on an egg. Large size. I'm here to trace a clown. Well, if you know what he looks like, we can find him. Please. He is, has this very important role of the um, sort of archivist for all the clown makeup, because each clown has their own uh, individual style of makeup, and it's uh, captured on an egg and kept in this archive run by John Cleese. Which is actually true. Is it really? No, yes. it can't be. I did some re- I did some research on this episode. I'm not saying John Cleese looks after them. <laughs> they, they are painted on eggs and kept in a location near Wookiee Hole, I believe. So that's the least stupid thing about this episode. <laughs> So, okay, so to rewind back, so we've got John Cleese in charge of eggs. Why why is John Cleese in charge of eggs with clown faces on? So basically, some businessmen are being murdered by, and it turns out to be two clowns. And I don't mean that in the kind of clown sense of the word, I mean that in the circus clown sense of the word. All-time variety show sense of the word. <laughs> It's another part of their research. They go and find an old gag writer who's played by Bernard Cribbins. Again, I am staggered by the set design for those two two rooms. All those eggs and all those bits of paper. I mean, it just felt so tactile and so so real. And, and those jokes were so bad, um, but so wonderful at the same time because they were being delivered by Bernard Cribbins. Bradley Marler. Well, if I'm not Bradley Marler, I'm having a great time with his wife. <laughs> I'm having a great time with his wife. Look, that was a joke. I'm not even married. A great time with... <sighs> uh, Bradley Marlow, the comedy writer. Here, look, look. This girl was going to marry this millionaire, see? And one of her friends says, look, do you know what you are doing? He's 87. And the girl said, look, if somebody gives you a cheque like that, you don't look at the date. <laughs> so, I mean, it very much ties in with my mood of the evening, which is kind of why I went for that one in the end, because I thought, in terms of my, my theme of the evening, because this... Board of directors are trying to demolish 40 old variety theatres. Now, I'm, I'm behind a murder scheme that <laughs> will prevent 40 historic theatres from being knocked down. <laughs> They're part of my tribe. 
I'm not saying I would never go as far as that, um, English heritage, but, you know, this is pre-listing of um, old theatres and a time when they were being torn down. It's the scene where Jimmy Jewell changes his appearance, like, in the blink of an eye, and then Steed acquires that skill later. It's just, what's going on? But we have been told that Jimmy Jewell is one of the best uh, quick-change artists in the world, and he can change... change costume six times by walking across the stage and i have seen some quick change artists going what how can you do that did i ever tell you the one about the chap who wanted to clean up with the foreign power no you never did tell me the one about a chap who wanted to clean up with the foreign power 14 sabotage cupid sabotage cupid persuaded a group of variety artists to do his dirty work for him steed you forgot the punchline <laughs> apologies for making you watch that but it's brilliant Nobody cares what I think anyway, Alan, but I've got to say, your 10pm choice is fantastic. This is Buffy. So I originally went, oh, I'd like to have, you know, one more time with feeling kind of normal. Someone else has done that one. You could do it again, Alan. And I went, okay, then I'll go for Hush, which is an amazing episode. I could have I done the whole wrong riff about going back to a silent film like we'd started in the evening. but So I went for the Tabula Rasa episode. Um, which uh, is in season six and actually is the follow-on episode from the the singing one. Uh, So it does pick up on some of the themes that arise um, in that episode, mainly around the kind of uh, Scooby's revelation that they have brought Buffy back from heaven. And that kind of triggers conversations between Tara and Willow about Willow's increasing reliance on magic uh, to fix problems in people. Tara says, oh, can you quit magic for a week? Um, which Willis kind of says yes, and then makes a wish that makes everyone forget. And so they're all in the magic shop, they fall asleep, and then when they wake up, they don't know who each other are. And I just think it's like a sort of perfect encapsulation of Buffy in this kind of one episode as people kind of try and figure out who they are, what they're into, who they like. I mean, I particularly love Giles and Spike. <laughs> Um, in this scene. We'll get our memory back and it'll all be right as rain. Oh, listen to Mary Poppins. He's got his crust all stiffened up with that Nancy boy accent. You Englishmen are always so... Bloody hell. Sodding, blimey, shagging, knickers, bollocks. Oh, God. I'm English. Welcome to the Nancy tribe. So I love the dynamics uh, between those two. And then Giles and Anya work out that they own the shop together. Um, but think because they kind of work up near each other and she's wearing an engagement ring that they must be engaged and then they kind of spend the rest of the episode squabbling and creating more and more bunnies which we know from the previous week is not something that Anya's particularly into <laughs> you know, sort of Dawn and Buffy start feeling very protective towards each other so they kind of correctly work out that they're sisters Xander, poor Xander is instantly attracted to, to Willow <laughs> and has absolutely no inkling he's meant to be with Anya which kind of you know sets up the, the kind of future of their relationship and um, the secondary plot with Spike and the Lone Shark who is a shark okay oh we, we're into that period of uh, Buffy where, um, where it's all a bit yes I love the bit when they take the mickey out of the spin-off I kill your kind and I bite yours so how come I don't want to bite you and why am I fighting other vampires I must be a noble vampire, a good guy, on a mission of redemption. I help the hopeless. I'm a vampire with a soul. A vampire with a soul? 
Oh my god, how lame is that? But it's not all laughs because obviously when their memories come back, you know, we do have some endings, you know, some real endings in this. You know, Giles, you know, had already announced um, earlier in the episode that he was leaving to go back to um, England and he does indeed get on a on a plane and leave. Uh, you know, you see Tara and Willow splitting up. But then you also see uh, Buffy and Spike getting back together again. Uh, so the kind of last five minutes, which is, you know, wordless montage over the song Goodbye to You, um, is really quite moving. OK, Ellen, before we start your final choice, can I get you something to drink? I'm a soft drink gal. So I have my own uh, like cocktail, a splash of orange squash, a splash of blackcurrant and apple squash, and then topped up with lemonade. I'm a secret lemonade drinker. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I'm trying to keep it up, but it's one of those nights. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Lemonade. I'm a secret lemonade drinker. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Lemonade. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Lemonade. Okay, Ellen, it's 11 o'clock and it's time for your final choice. Where are you taking us now? There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. Although this is the oldest thing on my list, it is actually my most recent discovery. As in the last few years, I have watched every episode of The Twilight Zone. (laughs) Um, I have um, picked one that's all about someone sitting in a room watching a screen. So uh, it's um, it's the 16mm Shrine, uh, which is episode four. Um, so it was very early on with Ida Lupino as the, the star who plays a fading, ageing movie star who at the grand old age of 41 <laughs> has been written off by Hollywood um, and staying at home in her Hollywood mansion watching films from her glory days. That's the setup. So it's kind of very much playing in the same kind of uh, pool of Sunset Boulevard, um, which obviously already happened and a sort of precursor to like whatever happened to Baby Jane, which is about to, about to hit our screen. Her agent, played by Martin Balsam, who would become kind of famous the following year in Psycho, uh, is sort of trying to get her out and encourage her to kind of meet friends and gets her an interview for a job. But she's not impressed that she's been brought in um, for the mother role. You play a mother. How old a mother? Mm, 40-ish, but uh, very vibrant, very much alive. As opposed to what? A corpse? I don't play mothers, Mr. Saul. I never have and I won't start now. I also don't take bit roles. And you should know that. This forces um, Barbara I, uh, Lupino to kind of retreat even further 
until she steps across the screen and enters into the film world uh, that she so loves and is um, obviously very happy there. So, yes, I'm ending my evening about, uh, yes, entering into the screen that we so love. If you can't find me after this episode. <laughs> to wishes, Bobby. To the ones that come true. To the wishes that come true. To the strange mystic strength of the human animal who can take a wishful dream and give it a dimension of its own. To Barbara Jean Trenton, movie queen of another era, who has changed the blank tomb of an empty projection screen into a private world. It can happen in the Twilight Zone. I chose this one because I think it's obviously really interesting from, a, again, just my kind of creative women uh, perspective in as much as um, Ida Lupino is the only person that both starred and directed A Twilight Zone. She directed Masks in the last series. And she also was one of the very few women film directors working in Hollywood in, during the Golden Age. So uh, there was only kind of like maybe three women working in Hollywood in the kind of 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, and she set up her own uh, production company making uh, films of social issues, things like Out of Wedlock Pregnancy, Bigamy, Rape. So she you know, she was doing these kind of really interesting things in this time where it was very sort of male-dominated. And she continued directing and starring uh, mainly in television in the 60s and 70s until she retired in um, 1978. Um, so again, a really interesting woman, as well as, I think, you know, to you. An episode that fits right in with my uh, love of watching films. <laughs> so let's take a look at Ellen Cheshire's Perfect Night In. It all begins at six o'clock with Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy, where all you need is a pair of glasses and a smile. At 6.30pm, we join Paddington Bear as he goes to the movies and ends up singing in the rain. At 7 o'clock, Alice Cooper is the special guest on The Muppet Show, and then at 7.30, Richard Burton mends Lucille Ball's leaky pipes in a star-studded episode of her series Here's Lucy. At 8 o'clock, Victoria Wood performs her best-loved comedy routines in front of a celebrity audience and beats us all on the bottom with The Woman's Weekly. Now stop me if you've heard this one, but there's an episode of The Avengers on at 9, and then the Scooby gang forget themselves in Buffy the Vampire Slayer at 10 o'clock. We've an appointment to keep at a 16mm shrine at 11pm as we round off our evening with a trip to the Twilight Zone. And that's Ellen Cheshire's Perfect Night In. Okay, Ellen, I've got one final question for you, and that is, who would you like to spend your perfect night in with? Well, I don't want to be too kind of over-sentimental, but um, many of these things that I was watching as a child, I watched with my, my dad, who died um, nine years ago now. So I think my perfect night in would be back watching this television with him. Brilliant. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. It's a perfect night in. Oh, Daddy, you got it wrong again.